Hi, this is Jake Kolakowski of Stop Fabricating, and you're listening to Beer Mighty Things Podcast. Welcome into the Beer Mighty Things Podcast. It's what you listen to while you brew. It's what's in your ears as you drink beers. Today, we feature a fantastic woman who is daring mighty things in the industry. And, uh, you know, that's what we're all about. Um, she's spoken at numerous events. She's been uh, featured on the Craft Beer Professionals numerous times. And um, she is recently the winner of a top prize at the Seattle Angel Conference Competition. Please welcome founder of Grist Analytics, Bryn Keenan. Bryn, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me on. I'm very it's... excited. Me too. Yeah, you're, so in, uh, you're in You're Colorado? I am. Yeah, I'm in uh, in Boulder, Colorado. Very nice. Very nice. Being out in Boulder and uh, with your background, I just had uh, Jake Polakowski on from Scofab. Did you work with Jake over at uh, Left Hand? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I did work with Jake at Left nice. Hand. He's awesome. Awesome. Very good. Yeah, it was a good episode there. Uh, we talked a lot about depalletizers and when to get one and when it makes sense and that sort of thing. So very cool. Let's quick dive into the most important thing, rock climbing. Tell me about that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've been, I've been climbing since I was like 12. So yeah, yeah. I'm from South Carolina. So, uh, it was mostly indoors for most of my life and yeah, it's, I, I love it. It's kind of, uh, I, I would say climbing and craft beer have kind of guided all of the decisions that I've made about (laughs) where I live and who I'm around and (laughs) yeah. So guiding compass. You know, at like 12, did you go to like someone's birthday party at a rock rock climbing gym? And then you're like, I love this. How'd that all happen? <laughs> no, I actually like, so I did gymnastics as a child uh, and it just got to, it, it, it it's so intense. Uh, yeah. It, it gets really, yeah, it gets really crazy. Like once you start getting to be a teenager and I quit and I went to an art school that didn't have any sports. So I was just, yeah, you know, like craving something. And my mom took me to the climbing wall when I was in middle school and, uh, I loved it. And it just turned into something that we did together. So she didn't climb, but she would come below me. And, um, yeah, kind of, it carried us through the horrible teenage years as friends. So (laughs) I have two daughters, so, um, I'm, my oldest is 10 and I'm going to be diving into that, uh, teenager situation soon. So it's, uh, I'm scared. Yeah, I bet. I bet. It's nice to have a, I mean, we still had, you know, those huge blowout fights, but it's nice to have like something that you enjoy doing together, uh, you know, to, to, to lean back on. For sure. Cool. So you and your mother both rock climb. Was that what you were saying? Yeah. Yeah. Basically. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Where have you been, um, rock climbing and you know, what's your favorite spot? And then where is somebody that where is somewhere that you want to rock climb that you haven't yet? Yeah. So I, uh, I took some time off after high school and I lived in Thailand for four months. Uh, yeah. And that was mostly, I was doing volunteer work there and living with family, but I was also climbing. That was kind of like why I went over, why I chose Thailand over somewhere else. So, um, yeah, I've done some climbing there, done some in Peru, um, Latin California, kind of all over the country. So yeah, all over, all over the world. That's really. so cool. Yeah. Yeah. My That's favorite, cool. my favorite is still the Southeast though. I think okay. the Southeast of the United States has probably the best climbing and 
some okay. of it in the world. And then you're a guide, right? I mean, you guide others, you're certified. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I worked at a brewery through college and then I took some time off and was a climbing guide for a bit in West Virginia. So, okay. uh, yeah. Very cool. Awesome. All right. Yeah. So I think like cycling and rock climbing and all these things and beer just kind of all go together. Right. You know, for sure. Yeah. It feels like there's like two, there's definitely like niche communities within craft beer for like people who are like really into one of these kind of like, well, it feels like craft beer is kind of like a counterculture sort of movement and all of these weird little kind of like side to the mainstream sports are also counterculture niche communities. So they, they go really well together. I think. I also think like after you're done an activity, you're like, I just want a beer, you know, for sure. (laughs) It just tastes better. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So uh, research assistant down at college of Charleston, studied the structural functionality of, (laughs) I don't know what, um, ribonucleotide redactase. Reductase. Yeah, that's that's pretty close. (laughs) Um, So is that kind of what led you into beer and then uh, Holy City Brewing? Is that how that all kind of transpired there? Yeah, for sure. I, uh, yeah, I, I was doing that research, uh, my last year of college and biochemistry research is just like, gosh, it's honestly such a pain, but you, you have it, you also often have to grow up like bacteria or yeast that's over in our case, we were like growing up bacteria that was over expressing ribonucleotide reductase. Uh, and then, um, basically like trying to like pump out a ton of this one enzyme and then all the experiments were run on the enzyme. So there's so much fermentation or growth work before you get to the point where you're doing functional research. That's like, actually in the realm of biochemistry. Okay. So yeah, yeah, I was honestly spending most of my time doing like overexpression of this protein in bacteria and growing up the bacteria. And, uh, then I started volunteering at Holy city kind of simultaneously and was like, Oh man, this is a way more fun version of what I'm right. <laughs> doing. I was saying, was that exciting? Or once you, once you realize <laughs> that you can put it together with beer, you're like, oh, this makes sense. You know, beer is science; it's all magic, right? So for sure, yeah. I, I remember like going back to my lab mate and being like, you know, I don't think I'm going to go get a PhD in this. I think I'm just going to work in craft breweries and like maybe help them build labs and quality control programs like for this stuff and. I remember him being like, if that were a job, everybody would be doing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. So then you leave Holy City, you go to left hand and start doing your QA, QC there or how that all. Yeah, I uh, I would have stayed with Holy City and I'm still really, really close with those guys. I think they're okay. awesome. Um, they're on the software. So we still keep in touch. Uh, but I wanted to leave Charleston. So I, I had a brief stint guiding climbing in West Virginia. And then, uh, and then I missed beer. So, um, I came, I, I moved to Colorado cause I figured that would be a really great place to do both. Just picked up and left, huh? It is. Yeah. Left with, I think like $500 in my bank account. <laughs> Sweet. Like any college kid, you know, For any, sure. young, any young person in the beer industry too. All right. So at, and then you go to Inland Island East Laboratories and where's that located? Is that in Colorado as well? Yeah. Yeah. I was at left hand for four years about, and then I 
left left hand and went to Inland Island to on kind of like a project based thing um, to we had just gone through like a bunch of yeast stuff at left hand. And um, I went to Inland Island to help them um, kind of like build out a robust QC program, mm-hmm. um, work on isolating some new strains and uh, just kind of like cross all the T's, dot all the I's there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then at what point do you want to start your own business and go and apply for the Seattle Angel Conference? Yeah. So I actually started working on it when I was at Left Hand. Okay. Um, I, I developed uh, Grist uh, with uh, with this with this guy Mark at Left Hand. Um, okay. We did a lot of work on kind of like what what the basis of Grist was. So we did a lot of work on getting fermentation data into an Excel sheet, averaging out those fermentation curves and being able to tell if a fermentation was normal or not. Uh, And that was like the seed of the idea for Grist. Um, So I started thinking about it when I was there and then I left left hand uh, and took the the consulting job at Inland Island. So I'd have time to spec out um, what Grist became in it. And it, it, we ended up taking a much different direction than what I initially thought it would be. Uh, but I was, I was working with developers and kind of scoping it out the year that I was at Inland Island. And then we launched the, what they call the minimally viable product, uh, mm-hmm. in 2020, uh, 2020 was a horrible year to launch <laughs> a company. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of took a step back and did other stuff and just, you know, was kind of silently working on it in the background and relaunched in 21 and, um, grew pretty fast and got to the point where we were like, okay, this is, people like this, it's working. Um, it can be so much more than what it is right now. And then we went and raised money, um, from the Seattle angel conference and, and, um, and others in the industry. Yeah, we won. <laughs> you won. Awesome. What yeah. the hell? What are, like, what was, what were some of the other, you know, competitors? What were their products? Yeah. So, uh, over, uh, a hundred companies were accepted into okay. the competition yeah. and some of the others were, they were all over the place. Um, it was two months long and the ones that ended up being finalists with us were, uh, this company called instinct that, um, basically like tracks wildfires, uh, through like right. a system of cameras. Uh, another one was a company that was working on, like 3d modeling using AI for like 2d photos okay. in the metaverse. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Yeah. Uh, gosh, what were the other ones? Um, something that was like removing and I'm going to like botch this, but they're like plastics and water that come from like Teflon and like waterproof material. Okay. Um, uh, that are really hard to PFAS, I think is what it's called, that are really hard to break down um, wow. and they're toxic. So yeah. they were um, breaking, figured out a way to break that stuff down. So um, oh. yeah, we won a lot, I guess a lot of things that are really making the world a better place. So. <laughs> but, but, beer, but beer wins. <laughs> but beer wins. Beer is priority. So. <laughs> you know, like yeah, it's 2020, exactly. you know, it's like, uh, you know, in, in good times people drink and in bad times they drink more. They're like we need Bryn, we need to figure this shit out. She wins sure. and you win two, you win 200 grand. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Holy shit. Yeah. And what do you do awesome. with that? Is that, is that to build out a team, build out the software, um, you know, improve, improve your uh, analytics and all that. 
Yeah, for sure. So we, uh, yeah, we got 200,000 from them. And then we also have a handful of investors from the brewing industry. Uh, and with that, we brought on a software developer, a salesperson and have been putting, and have been putting a lot of money back into research. So okay. those are the three big things we're doing. Um, on the development side, man, we have so much awesome stuff we're getting to work on now that we have that money, like, um, yeast trees, more, more analytics around packaging data, more automated QC feedback to the breweries. So like getting closer to making the data that they're putting into the software, like actionable from an automated standpoint, um, where we're like cross-referencing that stuff with quality standards, um, connecting breweries with QC managers across the country who can kind of hop in and help them with their data. Uh, yeah, have, have a lot of money going into, um, just general like brewing research this year. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, you are kind of behind the scenes doing your research, um, you know, at the breweries, um, you know, on your own in school, gymnastics, rock climbing, and now CEO. So like, do you feel that gymnastics and, you know, the competition of, of, you know, versus others and, and rock climbing kind of versus yourself or versus the rock climbing wall, has that prepared you to be CEO? Like how have things changed and kind of come full circle? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, I often wonder if like the skill sets from climbing have translated into running a company or right. if these are just things that I enjoy. So I like seek out experiences that are somewhat similar, Okay. but, uh, you know, climbing, climbing indoors, like maybe not so much, but at some point I got really into like, um, these big Alpine adventures. So like very long days, um, kind of like climbing through the night sort of sure. thing, uh, more like endurance feats, in the climbing yeah, I mean, world. That, that'll, that'll strengthen you mentally and physically. Right. For so, sure. Yeah. yeah. I think there's like this thing in climbing and running a company where you just like, you just don't even consider what happens if something doesn't work. Like there is no right or wrong. It just what is what it is. And mm-hmm. it's like this endless March forward where like everything that goes south or everything that doesn't work out or everything that is harder than you expected to be just becomes like fuel for problem solving where it's like, okay, what's next? Okay. What's next? You're kind of looking for the next handhold or foothold, right? Yeah. 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 Same kind of like, I guess it's just grit, you know, just, yeah. yeah, Figuring it out. Next step, figure it out. Um, Can't change the past. Let's let's keep rocking. Right. We got to keep going. Keep climbing. All right, cool. (laughs) All right. So you've done a number of um, collab hours and things like that with the BA. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, your, your findings. Um, you have a great presentation that you, do, that you did here. Um, statistical process control, right? So, so what are we talking about when we start to get into those details? Yeah, for sure. So statistical process control is a tool that a lot of other, um, yeah, I know it sucks to call like beer a manufacturing process, but it kind of is. And yeah, 100% is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And other manufacturing industries already use statistical process control like very, very heavily. Okay. So it's basically just saying like there's variation in everything. What variation is abnormal and how do you figure out uh, what happened when you see abnormal variation? Hmm. Basically. Yeah. So, so okay. 
So we got from point A to point B and it maybe deviated from where we were going. Now we want to figure out why, what happened, how do we control it, bring it back on online here? Yeah, for sure. And I think like, I guess the end goal of using SPC statistical process control is the concept that if you're trying to control your end product, which is um, really beer quality and efficiency, uh, like throughput through the brewery, uh, then you have to control every variable leading up to that point that influences the endpoint. And if you can control all of those intermediate variables, you are controlling the endpoint. So it's like, it's less stressful and emotional and confusing than like ending up with an endpoint that isn't what you wanted. And, you know, just being kind of up the Creek without a paddle in terms of like figuring out (laughs) how to make it better. (laughs) Up the mountain without uh, some rope. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And what are some of the findings? Like data is imperfect, right? Information is scattered and the brewing process is complex, right? So those, those are the issues. Um, what are the solutions? Yeah. So the solutions are kind of, um, yeah, data, data is imperfect. Um, in brewing there's, we have so much data that's coming in from even the smallest brewery who's taking like pH temperature, time spans, that kind of stuff, uh, with data imperfection, um, I think this like really plays into building out a lab and like building out a QC program. Like you don't need that stuff right away, but what is important is to make sure that the data you are collecting is useful and it's being taken correctly. So um, Mm -hmm. is the pH probe being calibrated? Is uh, the temperature, is whatever you're using for temperature reading correctly? And is that validated? Is um, our time spans being recorded properly on brew logs or is that something that kind of like falls to the wayside? So before before adding in like all of these additional variables that come with a QC program and additional instruments, it's uh, just making sure that stuff is valid, but also not letting it stop you from starting to track and trend those things. Like um, I used to have this boss that said, uh, don't let... Um, don't let perfection get in the way of progress. Absolutely. And yeah. And like, so the data set is imperfect at the craft brewery. You're still taking all of that data and it's yeah. still worth tracking and trending and proving yeah. to yourself that that's useful information. You can like worry about, this is maybe like a hot take, <laughs> but you, you can take, worry about up. it later. <laughs> yeah. Just well, that's why a lot of people, you know, they won't write a book because they can't figure out a title. It's like, no, write the book figure out the title. It'll come to you later. Like don't, don't let that just because you don't have that answer right now. don't let that stop you from taking your steps. For sure. It's like you, you, you hear somebody from a, a large like macro brewery or like new Belgium talking about statistical process control. And it's like, well, like, you know, you need to do X, Y, and Z before you start doing that. And like, you need this many replicates. And while those things are true, uh, without buy-in from the entire team, the SBC is something that's like helping everybody. That's never going to happen. So, you know, right. start, start wherever you can and yeah. and make it better as time goes take, on. Take the first step again. You know, my, one of my last podcasts I did with uh, Brian Kite, he, he daily discipline and uh, he's a leader for business leaders. Um, he, he also said, he was like, you know, you have to take that first step. You have to fail or figure it out. That's how you end up getting to that final product, right? Screw it up, screw it up, kind of trial and error, figure it out. Um, but don't let that fear of, 
of not succeeding, right? Uh, you know, kind of, kind of hinder your performance. So just, just take those steps, just like you're in gymnastics, right? It's like, you're going to fall, but eventually you're going to be awesome at it. Once you put in the time, right. You'll figure it out. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And it's kind of like, um, you know, when we first start with breweries with grist, we'll see a data set that's like all over the place, you know, like mash pH is all over the place and we'll come to them and be like, Hey, like, you know, if, if we really tighten this up, we could really improve brew house efficiency. And they'll be like, yeah. Oh, well, that's not accurate because the pH meter was funky that day or something. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay. I mean, it's still worth tracking, but now Absolutely. we have this chart here saying like this would increase brew house efficiency if we dialed it in and we can all get on the same page with this is useful information, but it's not useful right now. So let's work on like an SOP to calibrate the pH meter yeah. more often. Yeah. And I think tracking it, even if it is an outlier, you know, on a set of 10 or 20 different sets of data, you start to see those. Okay. Yeah. That was off that day, but here's the rest of them, right? You don't know until you actually put it down in, in some sort of format where you can physically see it or, or create that chart and look at it. Um, you're going to have outliers. That's fine. You can eliminate those, but you're going to see some sort of consistency somewhere as long as you track it. But if you don't track it, it's just up in the air and then you have nothing to rely on. Yeah, for sure. We we hear that a lot too. Like some people will have an outlier and be like, Oh, that was just an outlier. That's like, well, the outliers are kind of what we're concerned about. You know, like the outliers. Yeah, why was it an outlier? What happened that day? Right? Yeah, like gross outliers are way easier to diagnose than like <laughs> right. <laughs> anything so else. It, yeah. So we want to pay attention to those versus skipping over them and, and not putting time in on them. Okay. All right. Now, is there a way to track? You just, you know, does your software provide a way to track this? Is it, you know, or is it, hey, we can just start off with a real simple Excel template? Um, what do you suggest? Yeah, for sure. So like the the next kind of like big issue in brewing is the information is scattered all over the place, like paper logs, um, brew sheets, all the stuff. And then like, it seems like the next tier solution to that, uh, that people are leaning towards right now is like a Google sheet, Excel sheet, or an ERP platform. Yep. Um, and like thinking that's going to get data in a format that they can use, but like and it is actually extremely time consuming and very difficult to get data into a format that is both easy to enter and easy to analyze. Cause like right. easy to analyze means it's all in column format. Like it's really easy to, to pluck stuff from one column and compare it to another column across all of your brands, right. which is like kind of a heinous way to be storing data real time when you're entering it. So yeah, that is, that is a huge part of what Gris does is makes it really easy and intuitive to get data into the platform in a way that's like, intuitive on the brew deck or yeah. the seller. And then yeah. we do all the work on the back end to rearrange it and put it in a format that um, is, is useful for okay. troubleshooting. And there's a lot of variables in brewing, right? It's, it's complex. So, you know, as we move through that, right, we want to tidy up that information. Um, and then do you, do we want to simplify the brewing process in a way, break it down, or is there a way to do that or, or what? Yeah, for sure. So I guess like getting into um, like all of this stuff can be really overwhelming and kind of going back to the start small, get bigger kind of thing. Um, identifying key performance indicators okay. in the brewery. So KPIs, all right. yeah, KPIs, like what are the most important things in the brew house? What are the most important things in the cellar? And mm. what are the most important things after packaging? Mm. So um, 
Yeah. So not only do we go from water and grain and, and through to the brew process, now we go to the fermentation process and different temperatures and different locations and, you know, different timelines of when it gets to the uh, consumer's mouth. It's, it's a lot. Yeah, for sure. Like, and it's kind of like, it's this process of taking an endpoint product and starting to break it up into intermediates. It's like, okay, the endpoint is like the consumer drinking the beer and loving it. Like what are the intermediate products that we have to control to get to that point? And the first big one is like gravity, volume, pH, mm-hmm. leaving the brew house. And consistency, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the second big one is like, what is, what is, you know, the seller look like, what is it? Attenuation, final gravity, mm-hmm. um, final pH uh, and final sensory uh, characteristics. What do those look like? All right. So when we're talking about this, the, the OG and the original pH and volume and things like that, what, uh, what do you suggest or what are your findings? What are you seeing? Yeah. So we, we often see that those main KPIs, like when we first start with a brewery, so uh, gravity, pH and volume are all over the place. Um, at the vast majority of breweries we work with, um, gravity is, is, um, quite variable. Uh, pH is often like a total afterthought, like mm-hmm. what, what is the pH going into fermentation? But we yeah. found that, that pH consistency and being in the optimal range for yeast health is one of the most important factors for, um, a quick fermentation time and consistent fermentation time. Um, original volume. So this is also something that's like often overlooked at a small brewery. Like they just kind of like take what they get, but that can really be optimized. Um, and then I don't know, we didn't, I don't have this on mine, but like Peter Buchart did a whole study at New Belgium on, on fermentation consistency and found temperature in tank after knockout being, um, another like main mm. critical parameter, which I guess you could either kind of like lump into brew house KPIs or selling yeah. KPIs. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so this is all kind of that part of like, Hey, information is scattered. Um, and also you mentioned there with the smaller breweries, like they may not have the, the, the personnel. And if they don't have the personnel, they don't have the time. And if they don't have the time, a lot of this just kind of goes by the wayside. For sure. Yeah. And then like, you have, say you, you're tracking these main KPIs, like OG, volume, pH, tank temperature, leaving the brew house and like they're wonky, like they're not where you want them to be. Like, then what do you do? And then that's the process of like breaking the brew process down into more intermediate products. So um, in an example that we had on like one of our last presentations, um, pH was all over the place. Brew house efficiency was all over the place. Volume was all over the place. And the things that ended up causing that were mash pH inconsistency, which became really obvious once that stuff was control charted. Um, water duration was all over the place. Uh, and, and they did a few things to like make that more consistent. Um, sparge volume was hugely inconsistent between brewers and so was base volume. Getting those two tightened up increased yield by about three barrels per wow. knockout, which is huge for that's money. That's money. Yeah, that's a lot of money. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Okay. And then mash rest was like a bottleneck was happening. Was mash rest where like that was sometimes getting extended uh, between brewers, and they tightened that up a bit. And then um, 
we actually see like boil duration being a point of inconsistency with breweries. And that's mostly like an SOP thing. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. people are just kind of on different pages about it. Is that something you know, like, Hey, the phone rings and then they get taken away from what they're doing and they come back and they're like, shit, uh, you know, or a few minutes off or what? I think like the, the volumes are more to do with, to do with that. Okay. Uh, it's margin based volumes and the boil duration seems to, like, the times that I've seen inconsistency in boil duration, it's either because people just disagree on how long the boil should be uh, or um, the boils being used to correct for missing pre-boil gravity targets, okay. uh, trying to hit post-boil gravity targets instead of, um, I mean, this is, I, I think the best way to control for that is just to control the variables in the mash and have a more consistent pre-boil gravity. But there are other ways of dealing with uh, that inconsistency rather than changing the boil time, like adding um, adding dextrose or diluting with water uh, to hit okay. those OG targets. It's a lot to think about. Mm-hmm. What about the, uh, on the intermediate products? Uh, we're talking seller, 48-hour gravity drop and pitch amount. Talk to me a little bit about those. Yeah. So we, uh, we use some variables in the seller to really track like seller health and those are 48 hour drop. So, and we use 48 hour drop in conjunction with time to final gravity. So 48 hour drop is how fast is the beer taking off? It's just the difference between OG and gravity at 48 hours. So initial fermentation kinetics And then we pair that with how long our fermentation's taking. So if we're having really long fermentations, like those can be really hard to diagnose. And 48 hour drop is like the intermediate product of the end of fermentation. So are we having really long fermentations because the yeast isn't taking off initially? Or are we having really long fermentations because it's a long trickling path at the end of fermentation? And those two things are associated with very different issues. So... Um, if 48 hour drop is very low and final gra- and time to final gravity is very high, then it's like, okay, there's some, there's some issues going on with yeast health here. Either we're under pitching, uh, not storing yeast properly. Uh, viability is lower than we think it is. Vitality is lower than we think it is. And, and those have solutions associated with them. Glad I'm not a brewer. yeah it's a lot (laughs) yeah diagnosing long fermentations is 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 kind of a bitch what about zinc zinc yeah so zinc is something that's worth validating uh zinc and fan can both really drastically impact fermentation time and zinc and fan aren't something that a brewery is probably going to bring in house for a long time uh, if they do at all, because they're like, they're sort of difficult to test for and, and require a more advanced lab, but sending in a zinc and a fan sample um, from a new recipe, especially if you're having issues with long fermentations can be, um, can, can be really beneficial. Uh, fan is often an issue when using when doing a low gravity brew so if you think about it like fan comes in with grain you're doing a low gravity brew not as much fan is coming in uh you don't have as much fan as you need for yeast health um which is kind of counterintuitive to what most people think usually like they they add yeast x or yeast nutrient when right. doing a high gravity brew but it's the lower ones that really struggle with fan 
Mm. Um, and there are some negative consequences to adding too much fat. So uh, my, my stance is kind of like yeast ex- shouldn't really be used across the board because like it creates some issues for beer stability if you have too much nitrogen. Uh, but if you're doing um, anything with more than 15% specialty grain or adjuncts or a low gravity brew, uh, might want to look at adding yeast X or sending in a sample for fan. Um, same thing with zinc. So uh, probably going to want to take a look at, at the zinc. There is zinc that comes in with the grain bill. Um, sometimes it's enough, sometimes it's not. And that's something to just send into a lab. It's pretty cheap. I think it's like $50 for a sample and, and okay. probably has a return on investment to it. Yeah, I would assume the, the ROA is pretty good on that. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Um, we, we had talked about managing the yeast growth and yeast health. So let's transition a little bit into uh, dry hopping and um, you know, just maximizing yeast performance uh, and, and repitching in IPA you know, style beers. Yeah, um, for sure. So this whole like dry hopping craze during fermentation and biotransformation yeah. and all that is really presenting some challenges with keeping yeast healthy and happy, especially for breweries who don't have a workhorse that they can repitch from. So either it's really expensive because you're having to like repitch or buy a new pitchable so often. Yeah. Or it's really expensive because you're like trying to fake it till you make it with like repitching off of an IPA and like that's causing really long fermentation times. So it's actually like a, a pretty tricky issue to deal with in the brewery. Um, there is an absolute known correlation between exposing yeast to dry hopping and the viability taking a huge dive. So that's kind of like the golden rule with repitching yeast off of an IPA is like, don't expose it to dry hopping if you're trying to get um, well-performing fermentations afterwards. And then with that, we typically recommend if you are if you're if you don't need the yeast off of beer, dry hopping earlier rather than later is gonna mm. just like save some heartache in the long run with hop creep. And how much earlier? Uh, about first forty eight hours is is good. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, and if you do need to harvest yeast off of a dry hopped beer, dry hopping around two one to three Play-Doh from terminal, depending on when your yeast is flocking out, removing yeast before you dry hop from the bottom of the cone, then dry hopping. So you've got some non-dry hopped yeast for the next batch. Interesting. Yeah. If we're, if you're like trying to deal with needing to repitch yeast from a beer that has been dry hopped, pulling it, you know, like two to three Play-Doh, you'll have some like early flocculating yeast at that point. And that does pose a different set of issues with if you might be selecting for early flocking yeast, um, you're selecting for older yeast. There's some issues with like what's happening genetically with selecting yeast at that point, but it is the better of two evils. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that is to say like, this is not a perfect solution. Uh, yeah. Harvesting yeast early and dry hopping, you know, one to three Play-Doh from terminal, but it is better than dry hopping, with yeast in the tank and then harvesting that afterwards. So like either way, you're going to get fewer generations out of these yeast trees when, when you're dealing with dry hopping during fermentation. Um, but it's my stance and I think like the industry stance, that's the better way. Um, and then there are some other, um, and I guess, so, so to your point there, and I thought that flocking yeast brewing company would be a great name. Um, so I'm (laughs) sitting here smiling. Uh, do you think that, you know, obviously, 
if you're getting rid of your yeast, you need more yeast. It's going to cost more to purchase more and things like that. Do you think that maybe that is a, is a challenge for some folks to, um, you know, creating some of these hazy IPAs where they just don't want to spend the money on, on the extra yeast or what? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a, that's a huge cost associated with a beer that's already really expensive. So yeah, harvesting the yeast beforehand, definitely a way to get more out of the yeast. Um, and then there are some people doing some creative stuff now, like um, harvesting yeast off of the standpipe mm-hmm. uh, before mm-hmm. dry hopping. So then you're getting like active yeast and, and um, not selecting for the yeast. It's like early flocculating yeah. um, yeast. And that one's kind of cool, uh, but it has some difficult like production challenges associated yeah. with it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So hop creep, diacetyl production, some of the challenges, uh, managing and harvesting yeast are going to be those challenges. Now what happens to the pH? The pH is going to increase here, right? Yeah. So dry hopping is um, literally correlated with an increase in pH. So um, yeah. a pH above 4.5 in beer, I'm seeing it happen all the time these yeah. days that that presents some um, micro stability issues. So being below 4.5 is uh, is one of the components that's making beer uh, micro stable. That's allowing us to forego being audited by the FDA. Uh, and, and oh, really? Okay. It's it's. I think it's critical as an industry that we recognize that 4.5 is not something that like we want to start going over all the time. Or, or it seems like that is going to come with additional compliance that's going to be very expensive and a huge pain. And, and different it, hops are going to have different pH. Yeah. So you got to pay attention to that. You got to know what what that's going to do, what, what each oh, kind yeah. of hop is going to do, which variant. Okay. And it will almost always settle out above 4.5 if you have yeah. a big dry hop load in the beer. So that's like a enormous thing to keep an eye on. Um, there are ways to adjust that back down with okay. phosphoric acid. We have an SOP on how to do it on the growth okay. site if you go there. Um, also, like some compounding things that happen there, like uh, dry hopping causes some yeast death. Yeast death also causes a rise in pH. So getting dead yeast off of the bottom of the tank regularly after dry hopping, there are all a bunch of like troubleshooting methods to to decrease the increase in pH. But I mean, that increase in pH, not only is it, does it make it not food stable, but like that has um, negative correlations with head retention, uh, negative correlations with haze stability, negative correlations with um, crispness. So yeah. it's across the board. I do see oftentimes with some of these hazies that, you know, there's just, there's not much head at all, right? It just kind of fizzles out as soon as you pour it out of the can and it's, you know, and then it just looks like orange juice essentially. Um, yeah, you're like, I guess it makes for good Instagram <laughs> photos, but I, I think, you know, the, the head on a beer is, is so important for many different reasons. Um, but I, you know, again, if you just throw, Hey, double dry hop DDH on a can, people are going to buy it. Right. It's all the, it's all the rage. So. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's all the rage right now, but it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> when it's, when it's, I like not, that right how do we still make it like a, eventually it's going to have to learn how to be a stable and good <laughs> consistent yeah. brand. We need to make it behave. Yeah. We need to, we need to rein it in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I mean, it is, you know, the hazy beer is great for, you know, obviously it's tasty and things like that. Um, it's not always the brewer's favorite beer, but it's what sells and brings money into the brewery, but it's such a good intro style beer for people who say they don't like beer, but they're actually, you know, 
they like the juice. Um, it, the IBUs could be zero or very low. Um, so it's a yeah, great yeah. way to get people into beer saying that, you know, I don't like beer. Well, here, try this, you know, and now, sure, now they're in, yeah. you know? And it's kind of, I think that like goes back to like one of the points about the finishing pH too. Cause like a high finishing pH is going to like taste alkaline, which is like, can be like bitter and mm-hmm. cold, like um, drying and uh, not palatable for yeah, yeah. like the exact consumer who's psyched on a hazy IPA. Right. Right. Okay. So as the, is it as pH goes up, um, diacetyl can increase too, or is it the opposite? Yeah. So diacetyl, uh, production and reduction is correlated with pH. So, um, a higher pH means more diacetyl, uh, production and okay. uh, less rapid reabsorption. Okay. So uh, that's true like across the board for fermentation, but oftentimes dry hopping leads to hop creep and yep. hop creep leads to um, VDK formation or diacetyl formation. Um, and an increase in pH is going to um, ramp up that VDK production and slow down the reabsorption. So it's going to like exacerbate a problem that already exists. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And then what about uh, sensory instability versus pH? Yeah. So sensory, um, Chris, and this, like some of this research has been done on like macro beers. So we could stand to do it on, on craft beers, but. Or on like uh, lagers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. On lagers. There is like a bit that's been done on IPAs, but okay. not like um, in any sort of controlled way. As I say, with the lagers, it's probably more consistency, uh, especially macro level, you know. Okay. For sure. Yeah. But uh, a lower pH, so 4.3, really like 4.2 to 4.5 range um, is going to increase crispness, decrease uh, like negative flavors associated with like alkalinity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. And then what was the other one that you asked about? Um, Sensory instability. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, yeah, is, what does cloying mean? Cloying is like, I might have used cloying incorrectly. Cloying is like when you like drink something or eat something like really like kind of like sickly sweet and it kind of like sticks in your mouth. Okay. Stays around yeah. a little longer. Mm-hmm. Okay. A little mouth coating. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so bitterness increases coating. with pH. Crispness is going to be, you know, you want a 4.25 to 4.6. And then anything above that is starting to leave that that mouth coat. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, like drying, bitter, alkaline. Okay. Haze is going to increase with pH, but head retention decreases with pH. How do we find haze that balance? Is, <laughs> yeah, haze is actually kind of a difficult one. So okay. pH and haze have a complex relationship, yeah. um, and it's less like pH goes this direction and haze increases and pH goes this direction and haze decreases because they're so different, so many different haze forming reactions. Uh, but pH consistency is really important for haze consistency. So if a brewery is like, man, this one was really hazy, but this one wasn't, uh, pH might be a good place to look for that. Okay. So what do we do? We we hire you guys and we hone it all in, I guess. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, they, yeah, they, they're, the answers are all pretty straightforward and simple, but it takes so much work to prioritize that stuff, you know, uh, especially like in conjunction with everything that's going on in a brewery. 
And um, we do really like to think that we help out with, <laughs> with that, like getting all the data squared away, jumping in if people need it, kind of like recommending the top three things that they could yeah. do for efficiency or consistency. Okay. What about refermentation? Um, diacetyl can lead to a second period of diacetyl, diacetyl, <laughs> however we want to pronounce it. Yeah, um, that's funny. You said diacetyl and I was like, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go with what he. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, just however <laughs> said, we say it. I usually say diacetyl, but like all diacetyl. the chemists yell at me for that. So uh, we know what we're talking about. Yeah, we know what we're talking doesn't, about. It doesn't matter. Uh, so refermentation, um, you know, like try a hop, dry hops come in with enzymes that break mm -hmm. down starches and create simple sugars. Uh, and um, if you do that in the beginning of fermentation, uh, they sort of have time to work on those starches and it gets accommodated in the normal fermentation curve. So like the fermentation curve might drop a little bit more slowly, but it's going to take about the same amount of time and you'll end up in a stable place at the end of fermentation. Okay. Um, if you are dry hopping close to terminal, so like, you know, one to two Play-Doh from terminal, it's still going to break down the starches. That's going to happen much more quickly. Um, and it might stabilize in the same amount of time it would have yeah. if it, it had been added in the first 48 but it'll likely take a bit longer okay depending on yeast health if you're adding a dry hop load at terminal and then crashing you are generating those simple sugars you're breaking down starch into simple sugar but you're not giving yeast time uh to break those simple sugars down uh use that, that those sugars and generate alcohol and co2 so you're ending up with with sort of a sketchy product that has yep. some fermentable sugar that hasn't been fermented yet that will likely ferment in can. Uh, and you got longer tank times. I mean, you're sitting in the tanks longer, you know, that's, that's again, money, right? So for sure. Yeah. And then that secondary fermentation comes with the, um, the increase in diacetyl. So you're also like dry hopping at a time when yeast is like pretty done and least equipped to reabsorb that diacetyl and like get through the hop creep quickly. Okay. Now let's talk about like filtration real quick. So, you know, when we got a, when we're working with a centrifuge, would that eliminate the hop creep? Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts? Is that, what have we found? Yeah. So centrifuging um, reduces hop creep. So hop creep in can. Um, but it won't you, eliminate if, it. You know, it won't still, eliminate it. Okay. No, it'll still be there. Okay. As long as there's yeast in solution, it's still going to be there. Okay. Pasteurization have any, uh, you know, issues here? Yeah. So it depends on the kind of pasteurization. So if you're doing like flash pasteurization before going to bright or like on the way to packaging, uh, that is going to kill everything in the beer and denature the enzymes to some extent. Not, uh, you'll still get some hop creep. Okay. Um, it actually probably will denature the enzymes, but you'll still get some, you'll still get some hop creep. Um, so you're good if you don't introduce bacteria or yeast during packaging, but if you do that, you'll still get some, some hop creep. Um, okay. if you're tunnel pasteurizing, which has some other issues, like after final product, you're pretty much, you're pretty much good. Okay. All right, cool. What else, anything else we need to know about these items here? I mean, I think we could talk all day and we're going to do, I think we could do another one on, uh, was it lagging fermentation times? That's a, it's, a, it's one for another day. Yeah, one for another. Yeah, I feel like that was a very quick overview. So if anybody has <laughs> any, yeah, we like touched on a million different things. And uh, if anybody has any questions, 
definitely shoot me an email too. I'd be happy to like get into any of those specific things that we talked about. Um, I guess the only other thing on like mitigating some of that stuff, um, like filtering, uh, also reduces hop creep to some extent. Uh, and adding ALDC. So the enzyme that, uh, prevents the conversion of acetolactate to diacetyl can really help with some of those BDK issues associated with hop creep. And you have, so at Grist Analytics, Bryn, we have BDK test kits, right? You can order them or, okay. Mm -hmm. So you can purchase kits from you. They're pretty badass. There is like the first time that um, small breweries without a lab can test for diacetyl analytically, which is pretty cool. Um, It can replace the smell test or the forced diacetyl test for the most part. So you're not reliant upon um, people catching it with their nose. It saves some time and the inevitable arguments that that leads to. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, yeah, they're pretty cool. Even, even breweries that have, um, a spec and are doing that test analytically right now have switched to the VDK kits because that test is just, it's kind of heinous. The, the chemicals are really gross. The distillation takes forever. Uh, the whole test is, is really cumbersome. Okay. Um, the other thing I really love about your website, again, gristanalytics.com is that you have, uh, a couple of setups here for, for SOPs. Um, you have a library that you've been building. Um, so starch conversion, ATV swab testing, pH reduction of finished beer. So, you know, folks go online, download some of these, walk through page by page, and, uh, you know, ultimately get the game up, you know, figure it out. Yeah, for sure. And if anybody wants an SOP we don't have up there, we're cranking those out. So yeah. feel free to drop us a line and and tell us what you want to know, and we'll find the right person to write it. And we can um, go on your website, book a demo, right? Walk through your software, talk to your, talk to your team there, or how does that yeah. work? Okay. Yeah, exactly. And it will likely be with me so we can <laughs> chat about stuff too. Very good. All right. Uh, I got a couple rapid fires for you if you're ready. Yeah. Bucket list vacation. Oh man. Uh, I feel like you've been everywhere. <laughs> there's, nowhere, there's nowhere to go. <laughs> there's nowhere to to go. I really want to go to Juarez, Peru. Okay. All right. The edge of the Cordillera uh, why wash? It's a really cool mountain range uh, that okay. I'd love to spend some more time in. And you want to climb that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Badass. All right, cool. Um, curly fries, waffle fries, or straight fries? Waffle fries. Yeah. It's kind of, the... <laughs> everybody just wants waffle <laughs> fries. Curly fries are so good too, though. Um, what about any, any podcast, any book or author, anything that, um, you know, you pay attention to regularly? Yeah, I really like the NBAA podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a that's a really cool one that I listen to pretty yeah. often. And then maybe a non non beer podcast. Really like the daily. Yeah, perfect. But cool. That's got to Yeah. Well, you've been a terrific guest. I appreciate your time, and uh, you know, I'm very humbled by having you on here. It was a great, great conversation. Want to have you back anytime you have something new coming out. You know, pop on. Let's talk about it. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Cool. You're very welcome. We can find you on Facebook and Instagram, I believe, right? Yep. Cool. All right. At Grist Analytics, um, Bryn Keenan, you're the best. I appreciate you. Cheers. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. All right. That'll do it for today's episode. Appreciate you tuning in. I hope you learned something. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if so, tell a friend, leave that five-star rating I mentioned earlier and comment on Apple Podcasts 
subscribe on any platform, spread it around the world. Let's make it happen. I appreciate y'all. Cheers and beer mighty things. Thank you.